Good morning, everyone. It is so great to see and to get to worship the Lord Jesus with you. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32, and if you have uh, one of those Genesis journals, or if you would like one, there are copies in the back, and it is on page 146 in that Genesis journal. We are continuing our series in Genesis where we've been looking at the lives of the patriarchs and the faithfulness of God to his covenant through the offspring of Abraham. God had set his love on a man and called his family to be set apart as a people for himself. And we uh, saw God's faithfulness in the life of Isaac, and now we have been traveling through the life of Jacob. Now, previously, you know how, um, so my sons and I, we've been watching a little bit of The Mandalorian, and it'll give a little recap before an episode to show you where you've been. And if, the, if you need a bigger recap, it'll kind of go back into some previous episodes. So that's what I want to kind of catch you up on is that previously in Genesis, um, we have seen Jacob work Esau, his twin brother, out of his birthright and then deceive his father for a blessing that really already belonged to him from the Lord, but he deceived his father for it. And then he fled his brother who was chasing him with a murderous rage. So he fled from him to uh, his mother's family so that he could find a wife. He gets a bit of his own medicine and he's deceived into finding two wives. And then he has, at this point, uh, 11 sons and one daughter. The Lord has richly blessed him in spite of many hardships. And uh, just in this last chapter, 31, he says it's time to leave. His father-in-law chases him down because he left without telling him. They end up making a covenant and being allowed to leave. And Jacob is about to re-enter the land of promise. God had promised him and his offspring forever this promised land and the blessing. And this was the place where he had promised God and made a vow, if you'll be with me then I'll return to this place and I'll worship you here. And so now he's on his way back to the land of promise to worship the Lord and to keep his vow. And he knows a meeting with his brother is inevitable. Now he doesn't, in, in this passage, he doesn't have to seek him out. He could have worked around him. It wasn't that he had to travel through the land of Seir, but he's, reconciliation is on Jacob's heart. He knows he needs to make it right. But in this chapter... Before Jacob crosses into the land, Jacob is faced with great fear and faced with a great God. And so uh, instead of reading the whole chapter up front, we're going to read it in sections as we walked through this message. So let's pray before we dive in and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Father, we bow before you. Lord, I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice that they would hear your voice this morning. We want to be a people that tremble before the word of God. When the word of God is open, we want our mouths to be shut and our hearts to be quiet before you. So I pray that you would still every, every fear, every anxious thought, 
every consideration outside of this passage and what you're saying to your church this morning, Lord, would you quiet it? Would you bring us to a place like Mary where we are taking this one thing needed and sitting at your feet? Lord, we need a touch from your hands. We are praying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Touch our eyes. Help us to see what without you we cannot see. Help us to hear what without you we cannot hear. And Lord, let no one leave here unchanged. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage begins with uh, verse 1 and 2. I'll read it, and I'll give you sort of the, we'll take this chapter by scenes. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Try to say that a lot of times fast. Mahanaim. Now, uh, so this is scene one. That's as far as we got, scene one. We're going to work our way through scenes one and two pretty quickly, and then we're going to camp out in scene three. So this is the beginning scene. Jacob has this encounter with the angels, and he calls it. This is, there, we've got two camps or two companies of people. We've got this company, my family, who I've been able to see, and then there's this God's company. And this recalls Bethel, the very place that he's returning to to worship the Lord where God appeared to him and he saw the angels of God ascending and descending on this stairway to heaven. And it was this confirmation of God's promise and his presence where God promised him, I I will give you this land and this offspring and this blessing and I will be with you wherever you go. And so here as he's about to re-enter into the land, it's recalling God's promises to Jacob and, and demonstrating his faithfulness. He has been with him. These angels weren't just showing up in this moment. They had been with him and God had been with him wherever he had gone. But He's seeing it and is being reminded of God's presence. Now, um, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. We don't think about angels a lot, and there's a lot of, if we do, there's a lot of bad teaching or weird thoughts about angels, about guardian angels or praying to angels or thinking about angels on your pillows and all sorts of strange things. But... In a real way, God sends forth his angels, his ministers to protect, to serve, to minister his presence to his people. But more than that, Psalm 34 verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord, Christ himself, encamps around those who fear him. So in Christ, we have something far greater than ministering angels alone. We have God himself encamped around his people and here God sends his angels to remind Jacob that he has been with him and that he will be with him. He's coming off a great victory and he has been blessed greatly by the Lord. And so it is as if to say this blessing has come from me and from my presence. But Jacob's about to go into a huge trial, a big hardship. And it is a reminder to us that God a lot of times we'll answer a prayer or give us a blessing to prepare us for a hardship before we even ask. He knows what you need before 
your prayer is on your lips. He knows and prays for you with utterings greater than words because we don't know how to pray as we ought. And so uh, a lot of times he'll minister to us coming out of a great battle. So you see Jesus post-temptation in the wilderness as angels of God coming to minister to him and re-strengthen him after a great battle with the enemy. Uh, But here he's also ministering to him before going into one. So this is scene two, Jacob wrestles with fear. Look at verse three. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. Now hear, hear the remorse and, and the guilt and him humbling himself before his brother in this language, right? Go say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, really sorry, I'm coming to make things right. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. Now, it's interesting, this language for the messengers that he sent, it's the same language for angels. So, He could have sent people from his own company or he could have sent these angels who were with him and for him on ahead to to give this message to Esau. And in verse 6, it says, The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. I have a question. Have you ever been truly afraid? I mean, maybe that's a spot that you're in right now, or maybe it's a place where you live in where you think, has anybody ever not been truly afraid? But I mean, this language where it says Jacob was greatly distressed is unusual language. It means he's in dire straits. He's terrified. Because you have to remember, so even now, nobody knows what Esau's intentions are in this moment. We don't know the effect that prayer had or the effect that these gifts had on Esau. And we're going to get to Jacob's encounter with Esau next week in chapter 33. But you send to tell your brother proactively to make peace with him hey, I'm, I'm coming back into the land. I've been gone this whole time and I'm your servant and I want to make things right. And then your brother, who the last time you heard from him or saw him, he was chasing after you with murderous rage. His reply is not, I'm so glad to see you. I can't wait to say, see you. It's, here's 400 trained men coming out to meet you. I'll talk to you in person. That didn't feel good. And remember, Esau is the skilled hunter and Jacob likes to watch the Food Network. Right? So just by himself, Esau could probably take out his whole clan by his lonesome. And he's coming out with 400 trained men who are following in his wake, who he's trained for battle, presumably. And Jacob doesn't have an army. He's got two wives. He's got 11 sons under 13 years old and a daughter. And, oh, the promises of God. And so he prays. Verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. 
I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So remember, we're going straight to scene three, but I want to pause here and show you this is a model for praying to the Lord in the midst of great distress. Look how he begins with God of my fathers. He's not just addressing God on the basis of his relationship with God or his merit with God, but he's saying, God of Abraham and God of Isaac, you are the covenant-keeping God. You made this promise to my grandfather and to my father, and you have extended it to me. And so when we come to God, we too, because we are in Jesus, we appeal to him on the basis of being in Christ. We appeal to him on the, on the merits of his son, not our own merits. And he is a covenant-keeping God. He loves to be reminded of his promises and of his covenant. And so Jacob is come to, coming to him on the basis of God being this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. <clears throat> and second, he, he comes in recognition of God's unmerited grace. I think you see this. It, when we see God as he truly is, we see ourselves as we truly are. And so, and God graciously is using fear to work Jacob into this posture of desperation. So now he's truly afraid and he's coming before God and saying, God, I, my only appeal to you is on the basis of your covenant love and you choosing me out from among everyone else to set your love on me and I'm reminding you of that in our relationship that we have based on promise I am recognizing that I bring nothing I crossed over with only my staff and if I have anything it's because you gave it to me three is followed by a humble plea for deliverance from his present fears I don't think it should shock us that God uses his fearful circumstances to produce in him a posture of desperation and dependence. His fervency and prayerfulness are coming from God giving him these fearful circumstances. There are many times when we find ourselves in circumstances that we don't like and because we love comfort or we love ease, we're so quick to try to escape those things, not realizing what God's doing in the process and humbling us before him and putting us on our face to say, God, you alone are great. I'm coming to you on the basis of your merit, not mine. And I'm coming to you in humility. And I'm saying, unless you come through, then I have no hope. So with this, I say, do not despise the providences of God that lead you to a humble desperation for God. He is at work. And he is using the things in your life that you so much dread to produce an intimacy with you and for you to know him. Number four. He says, God, you said, but you said. So I'm looking at what I can see 
and it looks like death, and it looks like army, and it looks like you tricked me. It looks like you told me to come into this land, to return to this land, that I may bless you and do you good, and here I've done it, and now look. Now, there are many in today's culture that would see that and walk away from God, right? God, God, you said this, and now here's what I've got instead, and so you must not be good. Where we judge him by our, as the song, as the song says, or the hymn says, judge, uh, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning, frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. But you might see a frowning providence and, and run from God. But here, Jacob holds fast to his promises, and he says, I fear Esau. These circumstances are looming on me, but you said, those are big words. He's reminding God of what he said, which is not unbelief and it's not disrespectful. It's faith. It is faith that looks at the promises of God and what God says in his word and believes it more than it believes its own five senses. And he holds it up to God and he said, this is what I can see, and this is what you said. Are you going to keep your word? And the Bible calls it faith. He, he could have begun by making preparations, by doing all the things that he does later, but he begins in prayer, and he reminds the Lord of his promises. Now, Isaiah 62, God says that he sets watchmen on the wall over Israel. He calls them mediators or intercessors among God's people, and he calls them you who put the Lord in remembrance. Isaiah 62, verse 6 and 7, you can look at it later. He says, you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. Give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. This is God's way. He has invited you into partnering with him to see his will done on earth as it is in heaven. And it is a a gracious invitation from God for you to have the promises of God and the appearance of the promises not coming true and you to take part with him in seeing his will done on earth as it is in heaven. And David in Psalm 119 verse 49, he says, remember your word to your servant, Lord, in which you have made me hope. So God's word and his faithfulness is honored when his people appeal to him on the basis of, of what he has said. And promises from God are the language of faith-filled, acceptable prayer to God. Promises from God are the language of acceptable, faithful prayer to God. He loves it when we infuse our praying with his word and what he has said. And he gave us his promises to be believed on and to be claimed to be an anchor for our souls and to be fuel for faith and for growth in him. We're going to end this scene with 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. Marinate in passages like this. I fear that we, when we read our Bibles, we just, we read enough to take a little bit of the edge of guilt off for not spending time with the Lord and we don't marinate and really chew on it. Listen to this. God's divine power has granted to those in Christ all things that pertain to life and godliness. So question, believer in Jesus, do you lack anything that you need for life? And do you lack anything that you need for godliness? 
I mean, think about if we actually believe this. It, it means that he has given you everything, no matter what your past is, no matter what's happened to you, no matter what family you grew up in, you lack nothing that you need for life or for godliness. Now listen to this. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which, by his own glory and excellence, through his divine power and through the knowledge of him who called you, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Why? So that through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You want to escape from sinful desire? You want to become a partaker of the divine nature, realizing in your present experience what he has declared true over your life because of the work of Christ on the cross. He says this comes from faith in these precious and exceeding promises. You trust God more than your circumstances, and when you see a disparity between what you can see and what God has said, you hold up his promises and you say, God, but you said now, I'm going to skip over parts of verse 13 through 21. We're going to save a lot of that for next week. But in summary, Jacob puts together this massive gift for Esau, and he puts them in tranches. He, he sends them in droves. It's like over 500 animals. I mean, it's a massive gift, and he's hoping to appease his brother and really earn his forgiveness. And some people say that this was acting on faith, that faith is accompanied by works, and so he rose up from prayer and was acting in faith. But another take on this, and I think probably in keeping with the passage that follows, is that Jacob is adding some of his strength to his dependence on God. This is what Jacob always does. He, he's got faith in the Lord, but he's adding some of his own wisdom. He's adding some of his own strength to kind of sweeten the deal or to kind of help God out. It's been a, a generational sin that he's got all the way back to Abraham helping God out with Hagar and Ishmael. So then we come to scene three, right? He's, he, find, he discovers God is with him. He's got these two camps, and then he wrestles with fear. And in scene three, he wrestles with God. Look at verse 22. That same night... Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go. For the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. 
Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on top of the hip, that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, this is what has come to be known as a theophany or even a Christophany. It's an appearance of God in a form that is manifested to people that they can see. And it says that a man showed up. So how do we know that this is God? Well, it's not uncommon language for God to be described as a man if he's appearing like a man. Back in Genesis 18, three men appear to Abraham and two of them are angels and one is refers to himself as the Lord himself, as the angel of the Lord. So a, a Christophany is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. So when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is not an angel of the Lord, but very specifically the manifestation of him who is the word of God. A- angel means messenger. And so Jesus is not just a message from God, but the message of God manifested in the flesh. And when you're in doubt, if you see uh, an angel or the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament and you're wondering if it is Jesus or not, watch to see if he allows himself to be worshipped. Because angels will not tolerate the worship of God. You saw John in Revelation when John falls at his feet before an angel and he goes, no, 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 don't do that. I'm a fellow worshiper of Jesus. Now, Angels are so glorious and sinless, so if you saw an angel, you would think it was Christ, and you would fall on your face, and he would say, no. I'm a fellow worshiper of Jesus. But here, Hosea writes back, looking on this same encounter in Hosea chapter 12. I'll start in verse 2 and go to verse 4. The prophet writes, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel and in his manhood, he strove with God. Verse four, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. So verse three and verse four are talking about the same experience. He strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. And then the only explanation we really need is that Jacob in the aftermath of this fight says he'd seen God face to face and yet was delivered. Now, the book of Genesis will make you want to learn Hebrew. I don't know Hebrew, but I read enough commentaries and look at the Hebrew words that you see so many word plays that are meant to tie it all together. And as I was studying this passage, there are so many different takes on what actually is happening between Jacob and the pre-incarnate Christ in this battle. And should Jacob have been wrestling or should he have not been? And, and maybe, he's, maybe this passage is metaphorical and it's talking about Jacob prevailing in prayer and he's a model for us that we need to continue in prayer and, and wrestle with the Lord because the Lord likes it when we do that. But there are these word plays in the Hebrew that are fascinating, that I think help reveal to us the point of what God is doing in this moment. So this stream that Jacob sends his family across and sends all of his possessions across, the Jabbok, is an anagram, which means it has the same consonants with Jacob. So this is wordplay, right? There's Jacob and Jabbok. But Jabbok means emptying. And so Jacob is 
being emptied. He's, he's sending all that he has across. And when God gets him alone, he wrestles him. Now, this term wrestle is abak. And so you have yabak, Jacob, and abak. <laughs> right? And so what's happening is when it says that he's wrestling him, you're hearing this wordplay on the jabak. And you're saying, okay, so God waits till the man gets by himself. And then he shows up. And I want you to think, you think he was terrified when he sees Jacob coming at him with 400 men. This moment would be like if you were out camping in the woods and you looked up and you saw a lion staring at you in the face. And then he attacks. God came to Jabbok Jacob. He came to empty Jacob of himself. It's what he was doing. And, and it says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched him. Now, this is not some sort of small God moment where you see God actually wrestling with a man and a man kind of holding his ground. God is letting Jacob fight him. It's like me with my boys and my boys beating me wrestling, right? When I'm like trying to teach them battle, I'm trying to teach them how to fight and how to wrestle and, and working on producing the strength in them. So God is, is letting Jacob fight against him. And this word for prevail, it, it means like being able, but it also has like this endurance language to it. So it's, it's saying when God saw that he didn't outlast Jacob, that Jacob was in the fight and that he had expended all of his strength, he touched him. Now, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was written anywhere from 200 to 300 years before Christ. So as far as translations are concerned, it's a great translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus quoted from the Septuagint. The Septuagint translates what happened here as this man touched him on the broad part of his thigh. The language here is, is it socket of his hip? Is it the broad part of his thigh? The Septuagint goes with the broad part of his thigh and Jacob, it numbs it. And I was reading this, ironically, I hurt my back yesterday and I had some of uh, very mild versions of the same sensations, but it put me in a really place of appreciation of this. But when you strain your quadricep muscle, there's all these varying degrees of damage. But it, I was looking it up and it says, when you've got nerve damage, it'll make it go numb. And so God with the touch, whether it was he touched him and he, I mean, to knock a, sit, a hip out of joint the first time that it happens. Now, after it happens once, it's very common for it to happen again. But it's a, it's a violent, blunt uh, reaction like men getting in car wreck is like the most common victim of this. Um, but I think it's significant, this language of whether it's hip or thigh, the thigh is a place of a man's strength. I mean, it's where he straps his sword for battle. It is the, some of the strongest muscles in your body. And when Abraham made his servant promise that he would find a wife for Isaac from among his people, he said, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me. You see the same language Later in Genesis, it's the exact same word as this place that this angel touched Jacob at, where Jacob tells Joseph, put your hand under my thigh and promise me that you'll take my bones back to the promised land out of Egypt. And it's a mark of submission, right? You put your hand underneath the place of my strength and submit to me that you will do this thing. And so what was God doing? 
He was breaking Jacob's strength. He was bringing him under submission to him. And it's like those boxing scenes where you see the strategy was just to tire the guy out and you're just letting him, you're taking all of his blows and you're just letting him fight until you let him come to the complete end of himself. So he fights with him all night, it says. And Jacob's exerting all of his strength. God sees he doesn't outlast him and he touches him and breaks him at the place of his strength. And now all Jacob can do is hold on. He can't wrestle anymore. He's done. But he holds on and he will not let go. And remember, Hosea saying he wept and sought his favor. He, God put him in a place where he breaks his strength. And now all Jacob can do is ask for grace. And he's holding on to him. He says, God, he, Jesus says, let, pre-incarnate Christ, let me go. Nope. The day breaks coming. Nobody can see his face and live. Let me go. And Jacob's weeping. I'm not letting go until you bless me. Because he knows who he's got a hold of. Now, unless we think this is a moment where Jacob is winning this battle, Hebrews 7 says, there is no question that it's the greater that blesses the lesser. This is, this is not Jacob in a position of strength where he's got God in the headlock saying, I'm not letting go until you bless me. This is the inferior asking the greater, I can't let go of you. Please bless me, please. So the Lord asked him his name. Now, anytime God asks a question, we need to lean in because he knows the answer. So why is he asking? It's because Jacob must acknowledge who he is, who he's been. His whole entire life leading up to this point is a picture of a self-life, of a man living in his own strength with his own wisdom. Jacob, throughout the scriptures, looking back on it, is known for being a picture of yourself, a picture of your old man, the, the old woman, the the pre-Christ person, the one who's full of deceit and supplanting. And so God is emptying Jacob of Jacob. Jacob saying his name is a confession of sorts of who he's been. What is your name? Supplanter, deceiver. That's who I've been. That's why Esau in chapter uh, 27, he says, is his name not rightly called Jacob? After he's worked me out of my blessing and its birthright these two times, this is what his name meant. And so rather than blessing him in the way that Jacob thinks, God gives him a new identity. And he says, no longer will you be called supplanter, but Israel, which means wrestles with God or mighty with God, this competency with God. Jesus would say of Nathaniel, using the same language, behold, an Israelite indeed, a man in whom there is no deceit, no Jacob. So this match, this wrestling match, showcases God's relentless love to purge his people of ourselves so that Christ might be all and so that God might have his complete sway in our lives. And he does it in spite of our striving and our unworthiness. One commentary I read said that Jacob is no longer the strong, victorious controller of the divine, but Israel, who is totally dependent on God's grace and now lame. And it's interesting that Jacob names the place of this battle Penuel, which, which he says, uh, it, it's, he's naming it the face of God because he saw God and was delivered. And the language is the same deliverance language that he prays to God for from Esau. 
So he comes to God in prayer and in desperation, God, deliver me from Esau. But God was coming after a deliverance that he needed more, which was a deliverance of himself, from himself, and a deliverance from God himself. So, a summary, what's happening here. The pre-incarnate Christ appears to Jacob to empty him of himself and to bring him an encounter that would mark him forever. We were left with Jacob limping off into the sunset, or the sunrise, sorry. He, yes, God allows Jacob to prevail and to grab hold of him, but God is not the one who walks away with the limp. There is no question of who was in charge here or what God was doing. Jacob walked into the fight fearing Esau and anxious for deliverance, and he limped out fearing God, assured of deliverance. He walked in hoping for God's deliverance from Esau, and God sent him away, delivered from himself, and delivered from God. He walked in Jacob and walked out Esau from being a deceiving supplanter to being a prince of God who is mighty with God. So this is important. I want to bring this home to today. God would bring Jacob into the land of promise, but it was going to cost him himself. The old man, your old nature, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It won't happen. There has to be a cutting away. Now we know that those who have placed our trust in Christ, we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. But there is a walking the way of the cross where we realize that the road to resurrection life, the road to eternal life, travels through the cross. And he will work in your life, sometimes brutally, to empty you of yourself to empty you of the very thing that you needed saving from, the very thing was the reason why Jesus died for you in the first place. He came not just to forgive you of your sin and to leave you in it, but to set you free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this encounter reminded me of this passage in Exodus chapter 3. I'm hoping we can get into Exodus maybe a few series from now after we finish Genesis Um, So, spoiler alert. But in Exodus chapter 3, God came after Moses to kill him. Do you remember this story? It's a surprising thing. He just set him apart to be his messenger, to be a prophet for his people, to be the deliverer. And he shows up one night to kill him. Why? Because he had failed to circumcise his children. And circumcision was the mark of putting off the old man and living in covenant with God. And putting off the old man and living in covenant with God was more important than his life. That picture, telling that story. And so it was with Jacob. He would enter the land, but the old man had to be defeated. And it's the same with us. This is God's way. He will sanctify you. And he will do so sometimes with breathtaking blows. Where it feels like you've been wrestling with God all night, but he is emptying you of your strength so that you learn to rely on him alone. Listen to this language from Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. I hope you hear this. Hear the prophet speaking to you today, especially if you've been living in a far country, if you've been out away from the Lord. Listen to this. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has 
torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. He sifts us and he shakes. I don't know what's happening over there. Oh, okay. I thought somebody was like scraping on the wall. I was like, here we go. Um, he sifts us and he shakes us so that we cannot be, so that what cannot be sifted or shaken would remain. This is what God does. This is not a pleasant process. This is not some like neat Christianity where you're wondering, if I'm following Jesus, then why is my life harder than it was before Christ? Think about what he's doing. He is form-fitting us for heaven. He is purging us of the things that are dishonoring to him. He found us dead in our sin. And he made us alive. And now he is, his whole aim in our life is to form Christ in us, to make us like his son. There's some purging to do. And the purging comes by death. It comes by wrestling. It comes by being emptied of yourself. In 2 Corinthians, I want to read these two passages from 2 Corinthians in closing because Paul, I think, experiences the same thing and then writes to us as a model for us. That God does the same with us. He, he touches us and destroys us at the place of our strength so that we would learn to rely on him alone. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Asia. Paul was persecuted in every town. You remember he was stoned and left for dead. This is intense persecution. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So question, where did Paul's burden come from? When he says we were burdened beyond our strength, or where did the sentence of death come from? It was not the devil's intention that Paul would learn to rely on God who raises the dead, but God's intention. God burdened him beyond his strength. God gave him what felt like the sentence of death so that he would learn not to rely on himself but on God who raises the dead. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says that God gave him this marvelous revelation, this amazing vision, and then to keep him from boasting or from being inflated in his spirituality, he says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There are times when you're going to feel like you're wrestling with God and he is emptying you of your strength and you're pleading with him. God, you've got to come through. God, you've got to change this circumstance. God, you've got to bring healing. God, you've got to change this relationship. God, you've got to set me free from this depression, from these anxieties, from these fill in the blank. And he looks at you and you're locked in, in this wrestling and he says, my grace is enough for you. See, you, you have in Christ the blessing that Jacob longed for, the blessing that he asked for. He said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. Well, God's not letting go of you, and he already has blessed you in Jesus. But he will deliver you from relying on yourself. So Paul 
is brought to a place where he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is the display of the power of Christ precious to you? Is it worth the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, the calamities that you are enduring, that you so desperately want to escape from? And will you trust that he's good if he looks at you and says, I love you and no, my grace is enough. I've been praying this week as I've been preparing this, God, oh, that Christ would increase and that we would decrease. That we would have this emptying from the Lord and that we, that this would be a desirable thing. You hear Christians talking about all the time, oh, don't pray for that. Don't pray for patience. Don't pray for humility because you don't know what God will do. As if actual Christ-likeness wasn't more precious and worth anything that he could bring us through. So that we could have Christ himself. Elijah and Jordan, you guys can come back up. I want to. I want to leave you these questions and these, these takeaways for today. What is God doing in your life to bring you to submission? To, br- to empty you of yourself, to bring you to the end of yourself. And I just want you to know it's because he loves you that he will come for you. That you will find him like a wrestler in the night. Unwanted, unasked for. But it's because he loves you. Those whom he loves, he disciplines and reproves. So the first takeaway I'd say is to get alone with God. Get alone. And this is a real question. This is not, I know there are a lot of Christians in the room. And I know there are people in the room who have gone to church a lot or even made professions of faith. And maybe today you don't even know where you stand with God. This is a real question. When's the last time you were alone with God? Some of you, it could have been yesterday. This is not a guilt question. But I mean alone. No, there's no distraction that's quickly breaking in on your time with God, but you are sending everything across the Jabbok where you are being emptied of yourself and all you're left with is God and your thoughts and your sins alone before a holy God. This rich young ruler walked away from Jesus sad. This was a church-going, righteous, on-the-outside man. And he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commandments. And he says, I've done all these things from my youth. And so Jesus says, it's going to cost you your life. You should give up everything that you have and follow me. And what happened? He walked away sad. Because what the rich young ruler wanted, this is not Don't get this twisted where you think, well, the rich young ruler loves stuff and here I am at church. This is not what happened. The rich young ruler wanted Jesus and himself. I promise you that man continued to go to synagogue. He continued to seek out and do the commandments and all those things. Very righteous on the outside, but he walked away sad because he had many possessions and he didn't see Jesus as the treasure worth trading everything for. The rich young ruler wanted eternal life without the cross. And Jesus won't have it. 
He says, if anybody would come after me, he must take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. And so maybe today you're coming to the place where you realize that God has been wrestling you to the place where it's no longer Jesus plus you, Jesus's righteousness plus your righteousness, but just Jesus's righteousness alone on the sufficiency of his merit because he went to the cross to substitute himself in your place so that you could be reconciled to God. But he did not substitute himself in your place so that he could die in your place and you could live on your own. He died so that there would be a permanent substitution, you for him, your life for his life, so that Christ might be all and he might live his life in you. And he will not allow people who claim his name to mock him, embracing forgiveness without repentance and living their life on their own. And so know today that the way to eternal life comes by the way of the cross and that if he is emptying you, it's because he loves you. And if he's been emptying you and you've never placed your trust in Christ, it's to bring you to that place where you can no longer wrestle with God and you can say, I surrender. I surrender. Two, replace your fear. You may have walked in today terrified, full of anxious thoughts, and what happened to Jacob is he was in great straits and greatly distressed and he was praying to God for distress and he didn't realize that there were two things in his life that were infinitely more dangerous than the fear that was in front of him and the threat of his brother. The first was his own indwelling sin. Infinitely more dangerous than the threat of his brother from without was him, himself within. And so God came after it. And then the other danger is God himself. Jesus is wonderfully, mercifully dangerous to the old man. And he will come for you because he loves you. I love this. It reminds me of this quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Susan is saying, oh, he, Aslan's a lion. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? And the beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that's, that's Jesus. He's not, he's not tame. He's not, we don't know him as well as we think we do. He cannot be tamed or brought into your favor where he owes you. He's God, but he loves you and he's good. And so you can trust him. So number three, surrender. Your flesh wages war with the spirit of God so that you cannot do the things that you please. There's a, always a battle going on in your heart if you're a believer. Now, if you've never placed your trust in Christ, the battle may feel extra hard, but, or it doesn't even feel like a battle because you're just having your way. But as soon as God takes up residence in your heart, there is warfare. And my counsel to us is surrender early and often. Side with the Spirit of God against your flesh and be putting to death what is earthly in you. Don't leave any part of your life hidden from God or any sin hidden in the corners of your life where no, no other Christians know about it and you've given up the fight because it seems hard or because it seems shameful, but bring it into the light and confess it and forsake it. And then by the promises of God, wage war and become in truth partakers of the divine nature. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, you are inevitable. Just the ultimate strong man, the one who shows up to our strength and exchanges it for weakness so that we would learn to rely on you and not ourselves. Lord, I pray for anyone in the room or online who has never placed their trust in Jesus or thought that they have, but it's always been you plus them. Lord, if they've been wrestling with you, I pray that there would be a TKO moment right now where they say, Jesus, I surrender. No longer your righteousness plus mine, but you alone, Lord Jesus. You alone are sufficient to pay for our sins and to give us the gift of eternal life by grace through faith alone. Lord, I pray for those who have placed their trust in you, but for so long, it's been you plus them, or they've had circumstances or things that they fear that have been reason enough to scheme or to posture or to work and labor in their own strength. And I pray that today you would bring them to the end of themselves. That we would confess our independence of you, that we would confess relying on our own strength and that we w- the cry of our hearts would be by whatever means you need to, Lord Jesus, increase in my life and cause me to decrease. May it be true of us that we, the, the great I, has been crucified with Christ and it's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives within us. And the life that we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and loves me and gave himself up for me. Lord, may it be true all over the room. Empty us of ourselves so that Christ might be all. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I want to do this. I think sometimes we don't give enough opportunities to respond. And I, I'm not saying that you need to come down here, but this is open for you to come get on your face before God. I think the greatest danger that we could have as a church is hearing without hearing. Or seeing, but sort of hanging on to my pride. So I know that God's convicting me, but not enough where I would actually do anything outward where people would think that God was, that I was wrong. And I just wonder if the Lord's been speaking to you and you're coming to a place where we've seen him in truth and the only rightful place for us when we've seen him in truth is on our face. Jesus, how could you with me? I want to humble myself before you. And I want to come and I want to get on my face before you to say afresh, empty me of me so that you might be all. And if that's the cry of our hearts as a church, then let's unite our hearts in prayer with one voice and pray together. Whether it's getting on your knees if you're physically able at your chair or getting on your knees down here up front. But what do we have to lose to have our bodies match the posture of our hearts to say, Jesus, 
break me of my strength so I would come to a place of surrender. I'm humbling myself before you. I, I want everything that I am to match that and just inviting you into my life to say, no part of me, unsurrendered or not yours. And so we're going to start to sing, uh, but I just want to invite you to do that, to have a moment of asking the Lord to search you and try you and to physically respond and then to actually get up from this place to talk with a brother or sister to confess sin or to talk about what the Lord's been doing in your heart. But let's not be a people who hear God speaking and then just walk away, go back, going back to life as normal. Just eat a good lunch and sleep on it and then we can forget it ever happened. Let's, re- let's be a responsive people. Let's, let's uh, take a moment and just pray where you are and then you guys can play.